So I'm going to jump in to chatting a little bit about Ephesians chapter 6. Um, I hear that you guys have been going through this metaphor of the armour of God, um, where Paul is talking about these different parts of a set of armour and how they can help us in our Christian walk um, against the, the different things that we struggle with. Um, part of my goal today is to, kind of like what Nick was saying earlier, um, make, make this stuff real, make these words real and tangible to us. Uh, sometimes I, I find reading this kind of metaphorical language that it's quite abstract or it's become very familiar. The language has almost lost its power a little bit because it's so um, embedded in our Christian culture now. It's almost become Christianese, if you know that term, um, or kind of religious and spiritual talk, but uh, seems a little bit abstract. And, and my hope is to try and bring that into the tangible again today. I'm going to start by asking a little question. I'm going to ask a few questions throughout, so if you can not leave me hanging and give me some answers every now and then, that would help me along. Um, the first question is a guess who question. I'm going to read this out if you can't read it um, from where you are. This is uh, an ancient text, and it says, Since the divine provider who has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life has set in most perfect order by giving us blank, there's a name in there, who was filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a saviour, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, and since he, blank, by, sorry, by his appearance excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, blank, was the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. I want you to think about who should fill the blank there. Who do you think does fill the blank there? Um, who's the name that fits in that spot? Hold that thought, and we'll come back to it in a moment. Um, I'll, I'll hold off on getting answers from the floor just for this one for now. Um, that's for you to keep in mind. Let's jump to our passage next, which is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 15. And the metaphor, the part of the metaphor here that I'm focusing on this week is at the end. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and this is our part today, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. First thing I want to draw out of this is who we're fighting against. So we get three things about this. First is it's not against flesh and blood. Second is it is against the rulers, the authorities, kind of like the governments almost, and the powers of this dark world, and it is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. I just want to touch on that and uh, think about each of those parts quickly, just because when I've heard this mentioned, when I've heard this passage spoken about, I think I've often heard people jump a little bit to the spiritual forces bit, and I want to just draw our attention to that is absolutely there and part of it, but it's in balance, and it's probably in relationship even, in connection to this part about the rulers and authorities or governments and powers of this dark world. I think in our culture, we've got a, a very modern culture where we have quite separated the idea of the spiritual and the, the physical, um, almost like separating our, our mind and our body. Um, the biblical cultures where Jesus and Paul and the Old Testament existed within had no such separation. What was happening physically in our bodies was reflective of our spirits, and rulers and powers and governing authorities did things in the real world, but they were reflective of the spiritual power that came behind them. And those two things were in tandem and related. So I just want to start with that by saying we're talking not just about this armour being against um, spiritual things, but um, the connection of those spiritual things to real earthly powers and rulers who set the rules, authorities who make the laws, 
um, and powers who exercise power over people in the world. The next question being, how do we fight against those things? And that's where this metaphor from Paul comes in. And today we're focusing on the part of the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, my first question that I want an answer to from the floor, if I can get one, is thinking again about this bringing things back to earth, to being really tangible. Paul is writing this letter in the Roman Empire generally, but in a specific place as well. He's in prison and he's in Rome. Who do you think, in the context that Paul is existing in, wears things like he's describing here? Which actual people walking around in flesh and bone have this kind of stuff on? Roman soldiers. Yes, exactly. Heard a few people say something like that. Um, We are talking soldiers. We're talking um, members of this army who have conquered the known world. Right, um, And I mention that because this is, a, I think, a consistent theme with this whole passage, and especially with the gospel of peace, being Paul is um, riffing on, he's, he's almost taking, he's, he's borrowing and commandeering all these symbols and this language that already exists. It's not just language that Christians invented and popped out of nowhere, because if people invented new words, no one would know what they mean. You have to go around teaching everyone this new language, Right. They, they took words and they appropriated them for their context. They appropriated them, they changed them for a new meaning, but the original context, the original place they came from, can inform how we understand what they meant by those words. So, the fact that Paul is using a metaphor of uh, what a Roman soldier would wear is instructive about a little bit of the gospel of peace he's talking about and contrasting, perhaps. Interestingly, this whole section where he's talking about, you know, put on the, ble- the breastplate of this and the shoes of this and the belt of this and the sword of that, this is apparently a um, common pre-battle speech kind of form in that culture. So a commander to their troops would give a speech before the battle to rev the troops up and this is the type of thing they would say. They would say, you know, pick out a piece of equipment and then attach it to a virtue or a value. So Paul is, again, he's taking a standard form that exists in the culture and he's adapting it, he's kind of co-opting it for a new purpose to contrast it with something else. And the word peace obviously here is instructive, isn't it? Because pre-battle speeches and Roman soldiers' armour are usually purposed towards the opposite of peace, aren't they? So I think Paul's trying to draw a contrast here. So like this armour metaphor, like this type of speech, and Ephesians actually is slightly different to the other letters of the Gospel, sorry, in the New Testament. It's not a letter per se, it's more a sermon, it's to be spoken. It's like other things, like the words Messiah and Kingdom of God and faith and grace even. Um, Even the word name, like we were talking, like we were singing a moment ago, the name of Jesus. These are all terms that the New Testament has taken, they already existed with a certain meaning and adapted them for a new purpose. And the words gospel and peace, which we are armed with in this passage, are just like that. They are words that already existed, and the New Testament has adapted them for an, in a new way. I'm going to come back to our... Um, oh, sorry, before I come back to our guess who, I'm going to give you a little example of what that might be like. And this, this is a bit of a jolting example for us, um, but that, that sort of co-opting of a word, it's a little bit like... Um, if we think in the American context and the African-American context, it's a little bit like the N-word. So the N-word was this word that was used to, to oppress and used against slaves by the people in power, and it's this awful word of asserting their inferiority and your ownership over them. But actually, African-American people and many people of colour around the world have appropriated that word and they use it for themselves now as this statement of our identity to rob it of the power that it used to have in their oppression. These words of gospel and peace and kingdom and Messiah and Lord, these words are like that. They're words that the Christians have taken from their culture and they've made them their own. Let's see an example of that from our guess who. Here are, in red, the answers to that question. We feel like it should be Jesus, right? I'm reading that for the first time and I'm going, wow, this is Jesus who belongs in these spots. But actually, this is a, um, from a text called the Priene Inscription. Priene is a place in Western Turkey. This was written in 9 BC, so a matter of a few years before Jesus was born. 
So talking about someone in the way of being um, someone who benefited humankind, who was a saviour, who surpassed everyone before him and can't be surpassed, who brought peace and ended war, whose birth was the beginning of the gospel, who is a god, all of these things that are so familiar to us as a Christian, these are already in common use. And they're not just being used for anyone, they're being used for Augustus Caesar, who is this quintessential Roman Empire. He created the Roman Empire. This was this administrative and military legend in their culture who made the empire a thing and expanded its borders greatly. So, I'm going to give a little warning here of where I'm going, but um, this, I think this, uh, this language in this territory means uh, we're going to get political, not in the sense of I'm going to go and tell you that you should vote for a certain party at the next Australian election. I don't mean that kind of political. I mean political in the broader sense of how we organise our society, politics being um, the, the general idea of how do resources get allocated, what do we value, how do we choose as a society what we're going to focus on and what we, what we want to be moving towards. And uh, this is unavoidable when the, the main ways that we're speaking about Jesus are words like Lord and Gospel and God or Son of God, um, and those were words that were referred to um, with the political leader, with the Emperor of Rome. So let's start with this word gospel. It's here in this passage talking about Augustus Caesar, the god Augustus Caesar. Um, what does gospel mean? Many of you would know that gospel means good news. It's essentially a media term. It's kind of like news flash. It's almost like gospel here um, is kind of like our equivalent of saying breaking news from Canberra, right? Like it it's, makes us think the centre of power. This is big news. The Greek word is something like euangelion. I'm not sure if I'm getting the pronunciation right, but that word euangelion might sound familiar to some of you because it's a little bit like our word evangelical or evangelism, and it's the same sort of root word that that comes from. And so euangelion is the word here for gospel. Um, it's the word in our Bibles that gets translated as gospel or good news. And it's got this long history of pre-Christian use. So here's one example from the Romans, right before Jesus enters the world. Um, here's one from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Isaiah, originally written in Hebrew, but translated to Greek for the Greek-speaking Jewish world by that time. And when we have passages like, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, that good news, the, the Greek word in the Greek Old Testament is euangelion, it's gospel. So, and this good news here we're learning about is not just uh, spiritual, abstract, religious kind of good news where we feel a sense of, you know, goodness or peace internally because we have a, a right spirit. This is good news which is, again, in that broader sense of the word, political good news. This is the good news of the Jewish nation, the Israelite people, coming out of exile in Babylon and no longer being ruled by this foreign Babylon power being allowed to go back to their land and being able to govern themselves again. It's the good news that, as it says at the bottom, um, the Lord has re redeemed Jerusalem. So it's news about government and power and authority. They're not being oppressed by a foreign power anymore. Now we get to govern ourselves again. This is the type of thing that the word euangelion describes. In Jesus' time, it was used in a few different ways in Roman society. Um, I quite like, there's one example in history where the word euangelion describes some bargain prices at a market. So people are going to get the good news of whatever the cheap goods were at that market. But the quintessential use was about emperors, like we saw in that Priene inscription about Augustus. It's about emperors coming to the throne or emperors and heir being born, and especially about military conquests and military victories. These are the things that Euangelion was most commonly referred to as. I think this uh, brings some extra flavour to some texts in the Bible that we sometimes think of as, you know, a little bit Christianese, we're not really sure what to do with it, and we skip over it to get to the good bit. Let me give you one example. Here is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Often this seems a little bit like just the intro to the bit where Jesus actually starts doing stuff. 
But Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, has four really interesting words that are all this kind of pre-existing word that's making a new claim, saying that's not actually, what you thought this word means isn't what it actually means. It means what Jesus says it means. So the beginning, I won't go into that too much, but I think you can all attach that pretty quickly to another Bible story. The creation, this is Jesus coming into the world, is a, a new creation. This is a big deal. God is doing something completely new in his creative history of the good news that's the one we're talking about so the beginning of the good news was in the inscription about Caesar Augustus they're saying no it's not about Caesar Augustus Jesus is the beginning of the good news the Messiah that's a loaded term from Jewish history which we won't go into today and the Son of God which is exactly how the Roman Emperor was referred to as we had in the previous passage the God Augustus Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was also deified as a god. So, Caesar Augustus, by being the son of Julius Caesar, was the son of God. So, words like this, good news and gospel, which we'll come back to in Ephesians later, are not just um, coming from a vacuum. They come from a specific place. When people hear those words, they think something very specific, and they think Roman emperor. They think military conquest. They think emperor coming to power, emperor bringing peace. What the Gospels are claiming and what um, Paul is claiming in Ephesians when he talks about the Gospel is, no, that is fake Gospel. That's, That's fraudulent, empty Gospel. That is no Gospel at all. We have the real Gospel. It's the Gospel of Christ. Claiming that we have the Gospel, as I say, doesn't come from a vacuum. It's an oppositional claim. It's a claim, we have the gospel, and by inherent implication, Caesar is not the gospel. It's an unavoidable connection of Jesus is and Caesar isn't. It's almost like when we were singing before, we were singing one way Jesus, weren't we? We were singing um, like no other, you're our strength like no other. We were singing, I believe in the name of Jesus. And in the abstract, we can think, oh, that's a nice thing, I believe in Jesus. But what we're really singing, what we really mean when we sing that, when we're thinking about it is, I believe in the name of Jesus and not other names, or the name of the way of Jesus, not other ways. I I believe in the one way Jesus, not other ways, right? These are claims that have context. We're not just saying it in its own thing. We're saying the other things are not it. These other gospels are not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. You can see why the early church got persecuted, right? When they're saying these things about, uh, you know, our Lord is the real Lord, our God is the real God, our gospel is the real gospel, and these are all imperial terms that the Roman Empire wants to talk about as Caesar's terms, the emperor's terms. You can see why the early church is getting in trouble, right? They're not just getting in trouble for some general sense of being nice. You don't get in trouble for being nice. You get in trouble for challenging the foundation of how a society works. So, thankfully for us in our culture, when we say things like this, we're not going to get persecuted like they do, right? We can gather peacefully, we can say things like, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Caesar is not, and we're not going to get in any trouble because no one cares about Caesar these days, right? I want to ask a a question, this is something I'd like some answers on your thoughts on. What are some competing Gospels in our culture? If we don't have Caesar anymore competing for the Gospel... We've got Jesus still competing, saying, you know, making a claim to the gospel. That's the one that we sign up to. What are some other gospels that um, we have encountered, either ourselves or in our culture? What do you think? Any thoughts? Prosperity. That's a good one. Yep. So, uh, wealth, comfort, this sort of ever-increasing standard of living. We are the most comfortable culture that has ever existed, and we just keep accumulating more and more luxury and more prosperity and, you know, more wealth and so on. Yeah. Any other ideas? Sorry, I didn't hear. Was that one from the back? Peace? Yeah, well, certainly we have our own version of gospel of peace, don't we? So Christians will talk about gospel of peace, but society at large has its own version of peace. And I think that that version of peace is largely about just kind of the the absence of violence, isn't it? 
it's just kind of the absence of conflict, but I think I would question about whether that's really peace. Hey, I'll go into that more later. I think other things, the prosperity one happens on a personal and a social level, right? So we've got our gospel of prosperity where, you know, we're proceeding up in our careers and we're getting a good um, first home and then we're buying an investment property and all the rest. This is kind of one standard gospel for each of us on a, a personal level, right? This Australian dream kind of thing. We've, I think we've got the same on a social level, on a broader level in Australia, where we talk about, you know, good news, poignant phrase for us to think about when our ears should prick up when we hear that. Good news, budget surplus. Good news, interest rates falling. Good news, inflation is down. Whatever the case may be, right? And maybe those things will be helpful for our society, but are they the good news? No, Jesus is the good news, and the claim that Jesus is good news is an oppositional claim to the idea that the Australian economy growing is the ultimate good news, or that our bank balance is increasing is the true good news. Those things might be, might be fine if we use them for, for the goodness of what God intends in the world, but they're not the thing in and of itself, are they? All of those things should submit to the good news of the kingdom that Jesus has brought. Jesus is the real good news. Thankfully for us, even saying those things, like... Uh, Jesus is good news, not a growing economy, or Jesus is good news, not a, another investment property. Those things um, won't get us in trouble, like saying Jesus is good news, not the Roman emperor did for the early church, right? It's, it's still not a very high-risk thing for us to actually say. But doing it, living as if everything in our lives, all of our, our time, our energy, all of our money, everything that we have that can create value and holds value in our lives... It's much harder to say, to, to live as if that's true, as if all of that is, is pointed towards the good news that Jesus intends. So, for us to thinking about what is it to have feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, well, that gospel is not an abstract religious idea, that gospel is an oppositional claim. That gospel, claiming the gospel has content, it's got context. We're not claiming that our prosperity or our, I know, our grades at school or university or the strength of our military or any of those things are good news. Those things are not the true thing. Um, we, when we say we have feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, we're saying that we are submitting everything to this real sort of tangible, practical life that everything that we have submits to Jesus. So that's my thoughts about the word gospel sitting there. Let's chat a little bit about the word peace. Why the gospel of peace? Because that sentence, if, if Paul, when writing Ephesians, wanted to, he could have just said, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. But he added the words of peace. And I wonder why. You'll be surprised to hear me say, the word peace didn't come from nowhere in that culture. Peace is one of these words that had currency in the way it was already used. And a particular way that it was used in the Roman context. I don't know if anyone has heard the term Pax Romana. Does anyone know that phrase? It's a Latin phrase, which means the peace of Rome. Basically, the Pax Romana was something that they gloated about. It was this propaganda term, really. Um, Caesar Augustus, same bloke we saw the thing written about before, on his funerary inscription, it said he brought peace to the Roman world. You know, contemporary Roman writers from the time gloated about how Rome had brought peace, right? What they meant by that was inside the Roman Empire, there weren't any wars. There was an absence of war. Of course, was that really true all the time? No. There were revolts where oppressed people tried to rise up and claim back their authority again. But the Romans liked to, liked to think and liked to pretend that there were no wars inside the Roman Empire and that that was, that was what peace was. Now, of course, we know that that's not really peace, is it? Because the only reason those places are inside the empire in the first place is because they were conquered by war. And the way they're living now is under heavy taxation so that Rome can keep funding its wars on the edge of the empire so the empire can keep growing. And the only reason people aren't fighting now inside the empire for their freedom is because they know if they do, they'll get crushed. So the Pax Romana, this, this peace of Rome was referring to this, this uh, state of hidden tension 
of fear where people are, sure, they're not being uh, killed by a sword on a daily basis, but they're hardly living in peace, are they? That's the Pax Romana. That's the idea of what Rome wanted to be as peace, this kind of negative peace. So what does the gospel say peace is? What does this gospel of peace mean? We get a hint from earlier in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 say this, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace. He who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I've highlighted just two parts there, making peace and reconcile. There's other important bits, obviously, like one body and tearing down the dividing wall. But you get this idea that the gospel of peace that Paul is talking about, about the, the true gospel of peace, as opposed to the Roman gospel of peace, is making peace. It's not just tolerating a lack of explicit violence where we're not fighting right now. It's, it's not just keeping the two warring factions far enough apart that they can't see each other and get upset with each other anymore. That's not real peace, is it? Real peace is making the two one. It's making peace. It's reconciling these warring factions. It's not just this stop them from fighting anymore. It's actually creating goodness and beauty, right? It's reconciling. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6 it talks about I think that's why it talks about the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's this making peace. It's ready. It's moving. It's active. It's creative. It's making something, this gospel of peace. It's not just tolerating this lack of violence that you know, we have in the Roman Empire. I think a good way of capturing this is a, um, a very famous thinker and practitioner of peace, that's this guy. Does anyone recognize this face? Yep, that's Martin Luther King Jr., very famous for his work in the civil rights movement. They referred to it as the freedom movement um, in the States. And he spoke about this negative peace, which is like this Pax Romana idea. It's the negative peace, which is the absence of tension. I think actually it, he might have said the absence of um, overt violence, but there's still tension maybe, versus the positive peace, which is the presence of justice. The positive peace being the presence of justice is like the word shalom from the Bible. I don't know if you know the word shalom. It's this Hebrew word of this wholeness, this just peace, this presence of right relationship where everyone um, is in relationship rightly with one another, not just separated so that they can't fight anymore or not just one with so much more power than the other that the other won't bother trying to fight, but it's still unequal. That's the Pax Romana, but positive peace is what the Bible talks about with shalom. That's what this Ephesians passage is talking about when it says gospel of peace. I think of it a little bit like that metaphor of a, a frog in slowly boiling water. Um, that's like negative peace. There's the, the frog is sitting there, um, but the tension is, is ratcheting up. They're, they're not safe. They're not well. All is not right. What needs to happen in that situation is positive peace, where someone gets up, gets that frog out of the water, and drops it in the pond where it belongs, Right? Um, that's, that's the difference between this negative and the positive peace. So thinking about what being ready with the gospel of peace means for us then, I think there are some good examples of some heroes in the Bible who confront those kind of situations. The first one I want to talk about is Moses. Now, in Egypt, there was a kind of negative peace, wasn't there? The Israelites and the Egyptians, they weren't at war, but there was no peace, was there? Pharaoh thought everything was going just fine, but we have an enslaved, a hurting, oppressed group of people who are being exploited by the Egyptian emperor, by the Pharaoh. Moses, um, he protested to Pharaoh against this situation. He drew attention to this negative peace and he said, I want positive peace, let my people go. Some might have said that Moses was being controversial or divisive, and he should have just gone, oh, let's just all live happily together. 
Um, he, but Moses, we would say, he wasn't creating the division, was he? He was merely revealing it. He was exposing it and bringing it to the surface so that it couldn't be ignored anymore, so that someone had to do something about it, rather than just pretending that everything's okay, rather than just you know, sweeping it under the carpet. At the Jerusalem temple in Jesus' day, there was a kind of negative peace, wasn't there? People went about their day-to-day business at the temple, they would buy sacrifices, they would go into the temple, um, and everything was fine. No one was hitting anyone else, no one was killing anyone. <coughs> but under the surface, what we had was we had this um, priesthood class and this merchant class who had monopolized access to God. They said, you have to come here to this place, the temple, that's where God is. You can't meet God or have any sort of worship or proper expression of your faith in God where you are. You come to us. And to do that properly, you've got to give us your money by purchasing these sacrifices. Now, Jesus has no time for this kind of system of negative peace, does he? Jesus comes in, he overturns those tables, um, he drives out the money changers. Some might have called Jesus controversial. Some might have said he was divisive. We would say Jesus didn't create the controversy, did he? He didn't create the division. That was already there. That was just simmering beneath the surface. We were just trying to get on with our daily lives and pretend everything was fine. But actually, we had this system where the poor and the common people were locked out of worship of God because they couldn't afford the sacrifices and because this merchant class and this priesthood were making money off people coming to the place where they told them how to worship. Jesus didn't create the division. He merely exposed it. He brought it to the surface so that it couldn't be ignored anymore. I think this is actually what he's getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. I would love to go through this in detail, but I just don't have time, where he talks about, um, I think I've got a slide, yeah, where he has these famous three examples of turn the other cheek, um, hand over your coat as well, and walk the second mile. Now, I can't go into the detail, but basically what he's doing here is he's, he's giving a creative third option to these things. It's not just saying turn the other cheek is, being, is you know, be nice or um, be submissive and just let it be and move on. And, you know, walk the extra mile is not... He's not saying work really hard and, and give 110%. He's actually coming up with options for resisting violence to people and neither just submitting to it passively nor fighting back violently. He's creating a third way where the violence of the first action is exposed by this creative second action, which makes... The, the abuser, in the first instance, confronted by the wrongness of what happened. To give you a quick example, being the people who could force you to walk one mile in that society were Roman soldiers, again, but they had a legal limit. They couldn't make you walk more than one mile. And if you voluntarily, cheerfully started walking a second mile, that puts them in a very awkward spot when their commander starts asking them why they're breaking the rules. And they'll have to think twice about whether they ask someone to carry their kit for a mile again, aren't they? Because they might get in trouble if that person starts walking the second. If you want to do some more learning on that, there's a guy called Walter Wink, who I'm, I'm ripping off there. Um, so if you look up Walter Wink, non-violence for the violent, um, he explains those things in further detail. But this is, the, this is a similar thing of, like Jesus at the temple, creating peace, not just submitting to this negative peace, not just like sort of rolling over and being a doormat, not fighting back violently either, but creating a third option of how we expose the violence for what it is, but while loving our enemies and while trying to win them over, not trying to just become the new top dog and, you know, be the new oppressor. I think this works on a personal and a grand scale. Um, The personal scale for us Um, obviously about how we live the gospel of peace is we should be living good and whole and peaceful relationships in our lives, with our families, in our households, with our children and our our spouses and so on. Uh, In our churches, we should be living reconciled, peace-made lives in our church communities. And there are, um, there's lots of work that happens in that. There's an organisation called PeaceWise, you may know of, based in Sydney, who train people like us so that in our personal conflict or in our helping our friends who experience conflict or in our church communities to make peace, not just avoid conflict. So that's kind of the personal scale. We can invest in peaceful relationships for others as well, not just ourselves. 
that's a bit about what our ministry at Horizons is for, where we are effectively discipling people towards the gospel of peace without them necessarily knowing that's what we're doing. It's just good family law advice. But when we're advising someone to not meet bad behaviour from their ex-partner with bad behaviour of their own, but to, you know, to not, as we might say, respond to evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good, we're inviting them to, to live into the gospel of peace without knowing just quite how biblical and quite how Christian that idea is. When we invite them to you know, put the best interests of their children first, we're inviting them into caring for the vulnerable. When we're inviting them to do something like run a court case, which in some cases is necessary and really hard, which might take three or five years and with no guarantees of any particular outcome, we're inviting them to live and practice Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, even if they don't know it. And that verse says to not become weary in doing good, even if it takes a long time, and for at the proper time they'll reap a harvest if they do not give up, reap a harvest of good relationships with their children and hopefully a steady relationship with their ex-partner. So those are some ways that we invest in, in the gospel of peace for other people on the personal scale. But for many of us who are uh, quite comfortable, certainly I find myself in this situation where I have good relationships in my family. Certainly I have moments where the gospel of peace challenges me in the way I should relate to my family too, as it should all of us but where we live in largely peaceful relationships on the personal scale, there's the question of what about the, the grand scale? What about the Pax Romana scale? What about the Pharaoh scale where Moses confronts Pharaoh about Egypt as a society? What about where Jesus confronts the temple about the Jewish religious system as a whole system? Not just on the personal scale, but in the way, on the scale of rulers and powers and authorities of our world that Ephesians chapter 6 is teaching us to address. How do we not just have a world full of negative peace, but build positive peace? My view is that our world is not that fundamentally different from Jesus' day, in that there's lots of negative peace. Um, there are lots of people who experience the negative effects of other people's greed and other people's search for power. We have... Um, lots of different groups who suffer, whether they be refugees or women who experience violence inside households or the poor generally or people with disability or LGBTQI people or, um, you know, children, the elderly, all these groups who are at risk of extra violence or extra, who, who experience um, a disproportionate amount of hardship in our society, um, they are struggling. They're kind of like the the frog in the pot with the, the temperature slowly rising, choosing between whether they can afford to pay for their food or their medicine or their power bills that month, while we have these powers, these authorities, these you know big businesses and companies who make billions in profits, raking in sort of record profits at the moment <coughs> in the banking and the retail and the fossil fuel industries and all the rest, while you know single mums are struggling to feed their kids. No one's no one's getting, um, well, some people are, but most people aren't getting physically hurt. There's no, no big bank who's making a huge profit off other people's mortgages who can't put groceries on the table. No bank is hitting them. You know, there's no, there's no outright violence happening there, but there's negative peace, isn't there? There's no presence of justice and right relationship. So the question is, what, what can we do about that? How are we with feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? making peace in this situation. Um, there are lots of ideas about how we could do this, um, but following the idea of Moses to Pharaoh and Jesus to the temple, uh, I want to think about protest, which is controversial, right? And it's often polarising. But in many circumstances, like with Jesus in the temple, the question is, whether it is the, whether it is the source of the controversy and the division or whether it's simply revealing the division and revealing the hurt and the pain and just bringing it to the surface so that it's unavoidable and it has to be addressed. I'm going to give some examples of what I mean by that. There was uh, a few too many that I wanted to include, so I cut them right down. 
Um, but I'm not just talking about rallies, because there's rallies where people rock up with signs and with chants and with some speeches and they talk about what, they, what they're concerned about, um, but also sometimes when people break the law, intentionally breaking the law, to, again, raise the stakes and make this, this oppression, make this hurt of a particular group for a particular cause unavoidable, bring it to the surface so it has to be addressed. Now, breaking the law is controversial, of course, but I could name several examples in Scripture where people do just that. Think about the Hebrew midwives when Pharaoh tells them, kill the Jewish boys. They break the law. That was Pharaoh's rule. They didn't do it. Think about where Herod orders the wise men to come back and tell Herod where the baby Jesus is so that Herod can go and worship him, right? What do we think Herod would have tried to do there? The wise men ignore him, they break the rule, they don't follow what the authority of the time told them to do, and they go another way home. That was breaking the law. Um, Jesus breaks the law when he and his disciples knowingly pick and eat grain on the Sabbath, and they get in trouble for it. They try, the Pharisees try and tell them, you're breaking the law, aren't you? Now, I'm not saying that we should just go around breaking the law whenever we want to, <laughs> But there's a question of, at times, whether it's justified in the case of bringing to the surface, exposing some negative piece that needs to be turned into positive piece. Here are some examples I'll think of. Um, does anyone know who this fellow in the middle is? Yep, what's his name? Gandhi, yep. Um, incredibly controversial, right? The British were being exposed here. What, he's, what Gandhi is doing in this picture is he's on his salt march, the march against the salt taxes that the British imposed on tax, sorry, on salt being imported into India. Um, that, in that tax, no one was getting hit, no one was getting kicked or killed. It was negative peace, though, because it wasn't right that the Indian people had to pay this much money to these colonial oppressors so that they could access a, a necessity of life. And Gandhi decided, I'm going to create this, um, I'm going to expose this tension, I'm going to expose this conflict by walking hundreds of kilometres with his followers to protest that policy. Um, back to our Martin Luther King Jr. kind of world, you probably recognise this as a civil rights movement in America, the freedom movement, where they, in many occasions, had rallies like this one, where they had the signs and they had the marches. They also had many other occasions where they intentionally broke the law. They went into the restaurants. The black people were not allowed to be in according to the law, and they sat down, and they said, we have every right to be here that you do, even if the law doesn't say so. Incredibly controversial. The fact that this ended with, um, you know, the government having to, f the federal government having to force so many states to change their laws was something that those states were bitterly unhappy about, and many people in those parts of America to this day remain bitterly unhappy about. Incredibly controversial, but did these guys create the controversy? Did they create the division? I don't think so. I think they were simply exposing the division. They were exposing the pre-existing negative piece so that it had to be confronted. It couldn't be avoided anymore. It needed to be positive piece. Here's an Australian example. Does anyone recognise this photo by any chance? This is from the 60s. It's a group of students who were led by a Christian minister from Sydney called Ted Knopfs. So heavy Christian involvement in this one. What they did was, around the same time as the civil rights movement in America, they hopped on a bus and they drove around New South Wales to places where there was a significant Aboriginal population. Um, towns like Moree, up in the sort of northwest, towns like Burke. Um, and they were exposing, I think this is a really good example, they were exposing the fact that many Aboriginal people were effectively living as second-class citizens. They were effectively being segregated, even if that's not what was supposed to be happening. Many people in Sydney didn't really know this was a thing, so these guys hopped on a bus, they brought the media with them, and they exposed to the national attention the conditions that many Aboriginal people were living in, so that that scenario could be changed because these people were the frog in the slowly boiling water and many others were not doing anything about that because they weren't the frog in that water. They just lived their own way and thought, oh, no, that's not my problem. These guys brought it to the surface, exposed it so that it couldn't be, um, it couldn't be hidden anymore, so that someone had to do something about it.
also very controversial at the time. The, um, they were uh, threatened and abused. I think, that, I'm not sure if they were violently assaulted. They may have been, I can't quite remember, by the non-Aboriginal populations in the towns they visited. So there were um, white people who lived in those places who wanted to keep the Aboriginal people out of the swimming pools and keep them out of the cafes and restaurants. And this was very controversial. Um, but did they create the division? No. The division was already there. They were just exposing it. Which brings us to our time, because the controversy about protest hasn't gone anywhere in our society, has it? Um, and I'm not saying that we have to sign up to every single protest anyone ever has. We should still think, of course, about the cause and think about the tactics. Are these the right things? Are they truly exposing violence or are they endorsing violence? Are they truly trying to build peace or are they just trying to keep fighting the war of me versus you? Um, but given that these guys, these examples have been proven in hindsight to be on the right side of history, as we might say, we should wonder whether the controversial things happening in our time in 50 years will be looked back on as the right side of history or not, and whether as Christians, with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, we're on the right side of history with them building peace and making peace, or were we just tolerating the negative peace because we weren't the frog in the slowly boiling pot? Here's some examples. This was a group called Love Makes A Way that a few of my friends were involved in. They would have been about eight years ago now when the um, problems coming from our uh, detention of refugees who came to Australia seeking safety was at its worst. Um, and where people were being held in offshore prisons in awful conditions, um, and it was an out-of-sight, out-of-mind solution. Most of us didn't think about it on a daily basis because it wasn't us. It was a long way away. It was hidden, right? What these people did was they went into Parliament House, that's the foyer at Parliament House in Canberra, and they sat down and they said, we're not leaving until you release these people from their, their detention from these awful conditions. And they sang hymns, they sang songs, they prayed prayers of peace for these refugees who were suffering, these fellow humans, these fellow children of God. They absolutely broke the rules. A bunch of them got arrested, they got escorted out of Parliament House, and some of them got charged. The magistrates in court almost always said this was an honourable cause, they have been doing it for the right reason, and they were compliant with the police. They pleaded guilty because they know they did the wrong thing, they just chose to and let them off with something like a warning. Um, and this is a good example, again, because it was a problem out of sight, out of mind. It's controversial because they're breaking the law. You know, people saying people like this shouldn't go into Parliament House. Um, you know, they're just, you know, trying to stoke tension. They're just trying to create problems, but maybe they were just revealing a problem that already existed and trying to make it unavoidable anymore. These, this is a picture of a protest on Australia Day on the 26th of January. Some of these people would call it by a different name to Australia Day. Controversial, right? Hot topic every year. We come up to this time of year. On the lead up to Friday, it happened. Should we celebrate it on this date or not? Is it divisive or not? Are these people protesting it divisive or not? Are they creating the division? Is the division pre-existing and they're just exposing it? I'm not going to give you an answer on that. It's up for you to contemplate. But... The, the question is, um, with, as Christians, with feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, do we need to join these guys or join people like them to create positive peace rather than tolerate negative peace anymore? One more, you might notice the Tongan flag on the right-hand side there. This is a group of Pacific Islanders and their supporters blocking a coal ship from exporting coal out of Newcastle so that it can go and be burned, which would fuel climate change, which fuels the sea level rise that's putting places like Tonga underwater. Breaking the law? Absolutely. Interrupting the good news of our economic prosperity? Absolutely. Controversial? Absolutely. Are they creating the division? Or are they merely exposing the oppression that they and their people are experiencing already, drawing attention to, it, to that division, confronting it, and forcing us to think about whether we can continue that way anymore. Now, there are lots of other examples. There's protests in the, in the media almost every week at the moment. I'm not going to comment on that situation specifically because it would take me too long to <laughs> tease out what I think about it. Um, I'm sure many of you have thoughts about that too. But 
the question is, when we have protests like this, whether we agree with the cause or the tactic immediately or not, we should consider as Christians with the gospel of peace, are these people um, similar to these great peacemaking movements of the past, like Martin Luther King Jr., like Gandhi, etc., like Jesus, like Moses? Um, are they creating positive peace? Are they reconciling groups? Are they um, trying to uncover violence and oppression that people are experiencing um, and trying to stop the frog from boiling in that pot? Or, as some in some cases is, is the case, are they simply fighting the same battle and they're just trying to flip the tables and become the new top dog and oppress the people that they don't like? Where we realise that these people are actually trying to make peace, where they're being non-violent, when they're loving their enemies, when they are exposing negative peace and trying to create positive peace, we should be confronted. We should think, are we standing by living our comfortable, secure lives where no one's getting um, assaulted, no one's getting hit, there's no um, surface-level violence? Um, are we making peace or are we just standing by while there's this, for us, tolerable, but for other people, intolerable, negative peace? Or do we need to take up Ephesians' invitation to get up on our feet prepared with Jesus' gospel, not Caesar Augustus's gospel, with Jesus' peace, not Rome's peace, and join the downtrodden in their protest, in their third way, not fighting back with violence, not just rolling over and submitting and being treated like a doormat, but creating a third way where they reveal, that, reveal the violence so that it has to be confronted and, we can't, and, and brought to our attention to make us realise we can't go on like this. Um, do we join them? Are we living the gospel of peace? That's what I want us to consider. I might pray and then we'll um, go to the next part. Lord, these are tricky... Um, this is tricky territory. Um, but I just ask that through the controversy and through the difficulty of what it means to make peace, to step into places of hurt and of violence and of oppression, like you did, that we would follow your example, trying to create peace and not just to have people who are hurting become the new powerful mob and to get back at the people who are powerful and making them hurt, but to actually reconcile to make peace, for the dividing wall to be brought down and for the two to become one. Help us to take our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, to live as people of peace, reconciling and uh, bringing positive and not tolerating negative peace. Amen.